Morning, everyone. My name is Atman, and this is Bhakti Marg. It's our pleasure to share Sunday service with you. Special welcome to all those who are here as guests for either the yoga teacher training or the yoga sutras course or personal retreat, and those that are watching from afar. So I'm going to continue with a reading from Whispers from Eternity, which is a book of prayer demands and poems by Paramahansa Yogananda. Emerging from the cocoon of ignorance. I have heard thy voice, Divine Mother, saying, you have long remained enclosed in the cocoon of wrong human habits. Come out, ere the silk man death come to destroy you. Cut away the delusive, comfort-inducing silken cords of past habits, which hold you falsely secure in their chamber of death. Come out, cease being a blind human worm, sleeping and dreaming human weakness. Come out of your age's old cocoon of delusion. Spread wings of eternal power and splendor through spiritualizing your ambitions. Come out, be the butterfly of eternity. Let your wings display their innate divine beauty. Let them spread out over all space, entertained by and entertaining everything, everywhere. O wings of beauty, fly through the skies of infinity, attracting all towards everything that is most beautiful. Sun and stardust glimmering on your wings, banish gloom from every heart as you soar past on your joyous way to your home in me, O butterfly of eternity. So as devotees of Yogananda and the path of Kriya Yoga, as is taught to us by our teacher Kriyananda and by Yogananda, one of the things that we're usually asked to do is to serve the guru by spreading his teachings, by talking about these things, by not just trying to look into ourselves and our own self-realization, but by spreading these wonderful teachings and sharing them with all. Yet in the reading today, we're given a little bit of a warning in uh, somewhat graphic terms about not necessarily sharing everything with everyone and having a little bit discrimination in the way we choose to spread these teachings. And it's, uh, it's such a wonderfully, the, the image from the Bible is such a wonderfully iconic uh, image, a juxtaposition of, of swine and dogs, which at the time of Jesus were sort of the lowest animals on the totem pole. They weren't, they weren't necessarily the position of dogs today. So... <laughs> But, you know, the, you have this image of, you know, taking jewels, the jewels, the pearls of divine wisdom, and putting them in front of these, you know, lumbering, dirty, snorting beasts who trample them into the ground. And it's become a real image in our society. I mean, you hear about all the time about pearls before swine. But it's, um, what are we really talking about here? What is it that we're really trying to do? I think we can all probably relate to it if we think back for a moment to when we first got onto the spiritual path. And at that point, after probably a long searching of many incarnations and quite a few years in this incarnation, we finally decided we were going to dedicate ourselves to the spiritual search. And what happened at that point? You decided that 
this was truth, this was real, and it was time to tell everybody about it because you had just found it, so it was time for everybody else to find this. So what did we do? We probably started trying to talk to our families about it, to our friends, to everybody, whether they were ready or not. That's a very common occurrence. Swami writes about his experience with that in the, in the New Path. He says, uh, my rapid conversion to the path of self-realization uh, landed like a hand grenade at a Sunday brunch with my family. <laughs> and then to make matters worse, I immediately uh, got things even deeper because I needed to tell everyone that they should do this too. And this was the greatest thing that happened and this was truth. And it was accepted with, shall we say, uh, somewhat of dismay and disdain. And as you read about in the past, it's just total incomprehension on the part of his family. And something similar happened to me when I first came on the path. I immediately went back to my family and started giving them yoga classes and <laughs> giving them books and wanting to teach them how to meditate and you know, just generally trying to share my enthusiasm. And the response was sort of predictable. I mean, my family was very polite and they actually did go to my yoga classes. And, <laughs> But, you know, and I'd give them books and then they'd all, you know, yeah, so that's very nice. And then I'd come home, you know, some months later and there'd be the book on the shelf. And then some years later, they'd give the book back to me and say, well, you know, here, uh, you know, I, don't, I think you could probably use this better than we can. <laughs> and there was some resonance with my, my brother, actually, you know, he had somewhat of an interest. And so I spent a little more time with him and, until my sister-in-law at one point came up to me and said, you know, I think this is all what you're doing is all very good, but don't mess with his karma. And this, <laughs> and this is pretty amusing because I don't even think she knew, had much of an understanding of what the term karma meant, but she knew it was a word that, that I used. And what she was really saying is, you know, I married this guy for who he is and I don't want him changed out of this. I mean, the materialist self is fine here. You know, I don't want to make a big change. So it's, you know, it's understandable that we need a little bit of discrimination. And you can also think back to all the times when perhaps we were on the side of being called the, the dogs and the swine. And I'm thinking of um, all those people we've probably come across in our life who tried to convert us to something. And what happened usually? Well, usually it's just like it says in the reading. They said uh, it sort of pushed us farther the other way. And I'm thinking of more... For me, it was the evangelical Christians at time, or the perhaps the Mormons knocking on your door, or the uh, Jehovah's Witnesses. It's it's sort of um, sort of mind-boggling, actually. This is we have Jehovah's Witnesses who come to Ananda Village now and then, <laughs> and they knock on our doors and they like to tell us about their path. And you know, even after you calmly explain to them that this this whole community is it's pretty well set on what we're doing here. <laughs> Now, we, we probably aren't going to convert to your path to God. They, they thank me, and then they go to the next door, and they start again. And, you know, the only thing I can figure is it's, 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 uh, it's as it says in the reading, too, it, it strengthens their own self if they have to put themselves out there in that hostile environment to use their willpower to try to convert other people. And, you know, there's, their teachings aren't necessarily always as grounded or as, you know, as coherent as our teachings, but nevertheless, they're sincere and they're trying to convert us. Well, what's happening? You know, they're casting their pearls before the swine here, maybe, and we're not really paying attention. But I think I thought of another story about 
And again, it's all about readiness. When are we ready to hear these things? When are we receptive? When are we open? And that's our job as the people casting the pearls. That's what we have to tune into. Well, what was my first exposure to the Bhagavad Gita? And I don't know how many of you others had this. There's a number of folks who are here, or at least as old as I am. So they probably remember that back in the 70s and 80s, a fairly common fixture in most of the central transportation hubs of the United States were these folks in orange pajamas with little top knots who were uh, trying to pass out books to you, the Hare Krishnas. And I came in contact with the Hare Krishnas many times. When I was in college to go home, I had to go through New York City and I'd pass through Port Authority or Grand Central Station and the Hare Krishnas would always be there. And I always thought that they were completely crazy. And I kind of avoided them just like I avoided all the other crazy people that populated Grand Central Station, the drunks and the addicts and the homeless people. It was a particularly low period in New York's history at that point. And they were fairly there. And I just, you know, I didn't want to have anything to do with these people. They were nuts. And then a roommate of mine who was a little bit more open perhaps to these things actually engaged one of them. And he came home with a Bhagavad Gita. And so I looked through it. And again, I, you know, the Bhagavad Gita that they were giving out was illustrated with rather colorful, cartoonish pictures of these Indian beings, the Indian heroes. And I had no exposure to it. And I flipped through it briefly. And I still thought they were crazy. But what happened? You know, about three or four years later, I realized that the Bhagavad Gita was one of the great scriptures of. Uh, of the world and it really spoke to me through the teachings of yoga but it came through a very different path and where I was ready for it I wasn't quite ready for the Hare Krishnas and their version of it although they were all very sincere and it was still the same Bhagavad Gita so how do we really try to decide what it is that we how should we share how should we serve the guru what is it that we need to keep in mind and master wrote that in order to dispel other people's ignorance, you first need to work on your own ignorance. And once you have attained some degree of wisdom, that wisdom will help you tune into those around you to see what it is that they need and what it is that they're open to. And we look at the example of Master when he came to this country. Master was infinitely wise. He was an avatar. He was a realized being. And he could tune into everyone at the place that they were. He wasn't a guru, as Swami described it, who stayed aloof, who stayed distant, and only spoke from on high to his disciples. He mixed with everyone. There's that story of him in Chicago, where a, a drunk person comes up to him. And you talk about swine and dogs. OK, here's the, here's the drunk person coming up to him, puts an arm around, says, hey, greet Jesus Christ. How's it going? And Master just took it all in stride, and he looked at him. and. He said, I gave him a good shot of divine love, and, and he sobered up, and he said, whoa, what are you drinking? <laughs> and Master said, it has a lot of kick to it. <laughs> and he would, you know, he would even, he would change the lives of the lowest criminals. There were gunmen who were sent to shoot him, and he would look into their souls and send them that energy, that divine, that what they needed at that point. And he can give them a lesson about the inner teachings. He didn't try to hand them a Bhagavad Gita. He transmitted that energy directly to them. And in their, their lives were changed. But when Master first got here, 
he was unknown in this country. He was, uh, you know, a guy from India who in an orange robe and a turban. And he came, he was here with a mission, with a divine mission. He was an avatar, but nobody knew that. So what did he do? He actually put himself really out there. He, would, he went on lecture tours. He would advertise himself with big posters. He put on quite a show. He was uh, standing room only for his lectures across the country, and people could just feel that energy. But they also came as a curiosity seeker on his publicity. And you can see this. There's actually an example of it in the Shrine of the Masters. At the bottom of it, it, it lists a lecture, and then it says, amazing demonstration to follow lecture. So he put it right out there. He would do things. He would stop his heartbeat. He would invite people to come up and feel his pulse, and he would have different pulses going in different arms. He would show feats of strength. We had people would come up and try to push him off the stage, these big burly policemen, and just by arching his back and sending out the prana through his chakras, he could knock them off the stage. And You know, he had quite a following. And one wonders, well, what were they tuning into? Were they really tuning into the deeper teachings, or were they curiosity seekers? Were they just touched by his own personal magnetism? And when he stopped doing his tours around the country, his campaigns, as he called it, and he went back to Mount Washington to just work with the disciples, it was very different. There weren't very many disciples. There were a few who had really seen what it was he was offering. And they, they, he began to teach in very, very different ways. He would teach through attunement. He would teach by working with the deeper teachings. He would teach by going inside. He would teach sometimes by performing miracles, by doing things out of the ordinary. But he also wrote at the same time, he wrote again, he wrote his autobiography of a yogi. I mean, there's people, Lahiri Mahashaya appears in a wheat field on page five. I mean, it's full of miracles. And it's interesting to note that on the front piece, the title page of the thing, what does he quote? There's one quote there from the Bible. It says, lest ye see, lest ye see mir- um, signs and, and wonders, ye shall not believe. And so what was his purpose? His purpose in writing this book was, again, to get people, oh, think about this. Yeah, what's going on? Because how often have we, trying to convince or trying to talk to somebody who's really skeptical, How often have we talked about, maybe, about miracles? I mean, that's what really grabs people when you can tell them, hey, look at this, this happened. You know, this is really out of the ordinary. You should pay attention here. And Swami did that, too. He was, uh, when he was a young disciple at Mount Washington, he went and was at some function, and there was a very skeptical, uh, I think it was a psychiatrist, a very skeptical person there. And he began to try to convince him of the merits of this path of self-realization. And at some point, he, perhaps out of some desperation and seeing that he wasn't really getting very far with the rational arguments, he started talking about miracles that he had seen uh, Master perform, hoping that that would convert this person or get him interested. But it didn't. And when he came back, Master, who knew all of his thoughts and all of what what was going on, said, by the way, when my people, when you're with really materialistic people, it's, it's best not to speak of miracles and put it out there. Although he, who the master, had put that out in his autobiography, but he was counseling us, who necessarily didn't have that discrimination or that sense of people, so it's better not to speak of miracles. 
and it's especially it comes back to us too. It's uh, one of the warnings they give in the, in the spiritual teachings, and Swami has said this: is be be very careful when you share your inmost experiences. It may not necessarily be a miracle like appearing in a field somewhere. You probably haven't done that yet, but maybe you have, I don't know. Uh, but there, we all have very special things that have happened to us, things where we felt God's presence, where something quite extraordinary or out of the ordinary happened to us, which really helped our faith and renewed it. Be very careful of who you share that with, because if you share it with someone who is skeptical and materialist, what's likely to happen? They're likely to start giving you all the reasons why you're in delusion and why this really didn't happen and why it wasn't what you thought it was. And that doesn't necessarily help help us. So we have to be very careful of how we do that and what the situation is. I've often thought, well, what would it be like if, if Master appeared today? instead of in the 1920s. And the 1920s were a little different than they are today. Um, There was much, much less known about the spiritual teachings, about gurus, about uh, Eastern religions. And, you know, would, would he have approached us in the same way that he did back there? Would he have done his campaigns? Or, you know, would he start doing the talk show circuits and showing people how his pulses didn't work or, you know, blowing people off the stage on the Oprah show or, or getting on YouTube and all these, you know, YouTube videos suddenly out there of this master performing these miracles. Somehow I don't think so. I think he did what, what God wanted him to do at that time. And master said, he said, masters never do miracles unless they're sanctioned by the divine to perform those miracles. That the, the divine father doesn't really want to be promiscuous with the secrets of the universe that he's out there. So I tend to think that it would have been slightly a different approach. Uh, you could just imagine that what if uh, the CIA or the NSA tuned into the fact that he could know everyone's thoughts. <laughs> He'd be a pretty hot security commodity. He said, well, you know, <laughs> hey, come work with us. You know, you got to, you know, somehow I don't think it would have been put out in exactly the same way. And that's, that's really important. So we move from the avatar, we move to our teacher, Swami Kriyananda. And what example has he given us? After his admonishment from the master, not necessarily to talk about miracles, uh, he you know, maybe changed his approach on things, but he certainly didn't change his fundamental dedication and zeal to spreading his master's work. His whole life was about trying to touch everyone with these teachings, trying to put these out in a way that would touch anyone who came across his path be it the shopkeeper in Sicily, be it the devotees at Spiritual Renewal Week, be it the airline attendant. But he always, as a man of wisdom, he would always tune in to exactly what was appropriate in that time. How did he, he again, like Master, was everybody's friend. I mean, you hear again and again, people that hardly knew Swami said, yeah, I I just feel like he was my best friend because he could tune in to that with that wisdom. What was it that that person needed right now, what is it that I can give him? And again, he was also transmitting energy in many different ways. But if you look at his writings, his writings spread a very, very wide gamut of audiences. Many of the things he's written under the title of Swami Kriyananda, especially the editing of his master's works, are very, very deep teachings and meant for devotees who are firmly rooted on the path. And 
uh, guiding us on along that. But he also wrote many things, perhaps many of the books under the, t under the name of J. Donald Walters. He wrote many things that were farther out on that wheel. Master came to change the consciousness of an age. He brought it to come to usher in Dwapara Yuga. And Swami was part of that, working with those teachings. How do we put these teachings out there for people that can really affect everyone, really affect all aspects of life, whether they're ready to dedicate themselves deeply to the spiritual search and Kriya Yoga and have a guru or not. You think of his writings on success, on leadership, on, on the um, hope for a better world where he takes on the major philosophers of the Western civilization and, you know, just very rationally gives them arguments about why they're false and why it doesn't work and why cooperation and not competition is the right way. But he doesn't do it uh, taking God and, you know, throwing it before them and saying, my master said this. He just tries to get people where they are, relating to people where they are at. That's the key. As one of his most uh, recent books, The Pilgrimage to Guadalupe, it's a masterpiece. It's a fictional work, supposedly, of, about, of a pilgrim that takes a journey, a pilgrimage, and he meets various people on his way. Well, who does he meet? He meets a representative of all the major personality types or belief types that you may find in your search. And he gives a very cogent dialogue about how you might want to approach that person when you're talking to them. And he talks to a evangelical Christian, he talks to an atheist, he talks to a scientist, he talks to a, a, someone who's um, a teacher, he talks to someone who's searching but doesn't really believe that there are things out there, or some are agnostic, it's, it's masterful. I mean, and if you read those things, you can sort of file those things away and say, oh, this is how you talk to a person in that way. And you can still uplift them, you can still share with them, and you can still do it in a way that doesn't, as it says in the readings, push them farther away from their own destiny at some point to try to reach out to, to embrace these teachings. It just makes them think, it sort of takes them on that next step along the way. And I think this is extremely important for us, especially here now, because as we celebrated last weekend, the movie Finding Happiness is about to come out. And we're casting a much broader net than we ever have before at Swamiji's urging. And we're all going to be, in some way or another, probably in the coming years, ambassadors for this path. And this movie is going to touch people on lots of different levels. And it won't necessarily be people who are ready to dedicate their lives to the search for God through Kriya Yoga and the guru of Yogananda. There's people who will be just touched by very different aspects of it. And it's gonna be important for us as ambassadors for that to tune in and to try to say, what's the right next step for this person? How can we determine where they are and what they wanna hear? And all they may wanna talk about is the educational system. So yeah, values and education, that's what we need. They just may want to talk about farming. They said, wow, you guys talk to the plant spirits. I want to do that, and you know, but nothing about God and guru because I've already had the Christian evangelist coming to talk to me and anything that smacks of God, I've already been pushed away from that. So it's going to be very important for us to tune in. And the Bhagavad Gita reading this week gives us some clear lessons and guidance of how we might want to do that. Because in the amazing style of that great scripture, it 
while it's telling us, okay, don't give the inner teachings to these people, the quality that it mentions, the qualities that it mentions are actually the qualities that we're trying to reinforce. And it gives us a touchstone of how we can look at people, how we can look at ourselves about how ready we are for these teachings. So what does it say? It says, don't give these teachings to ones who lack in self-control. Okay, self-control, why self-control? Self-control is a fundamental part of the spiritual path. It just means controlling the senses, controlling the desires, controlling those inner urges. If you have people who can't sit still, who are bouncing all over the place, who are being drawn by whatever their environment is giving them, they may not be all that receptive to some of the things we have to offer. A fundamental part of what we do is, you know, you need to get beyond reacting. You need to get beyond these impetus, uh, the impeti <laughs> that are coming from the subconscious mind. Then they say, what else? Devotion. Said you, you know, don't, don't give this to people unless they have some devotion. What are they talking about there? I mean, if somebody had said that to me when I first got on the path, <clears throat> I don't know if I would have gotten on the path because I was, I was fairly far to the rational side, not very close to the devotional side. But why is that important? And Swami says it's because many of these truths are really only grasped on the intuitive feeling level, and they can't necessarily be grasped on the rational level. There's that great story of, of uh, this told in the new path where a pundit or a, this learned gentleman comes to visit Yogananda at his room and he has all these questions that he wants to get answered by the, the great master, these deep philosophical questions. And he sits down in the interview room and he gives these, you know, this very long question and master just calmly looks at him and answers, love God. And he, okay, well, man, maybe he didn't know the answer to that one. So then he goes into another long-winded question and master again looks at him and says, love God. And he's going, wow, I don't know, maybe this guy isn't as smart as I thought. And so he goes into one last question, and then at the end, of course, Master just goes, love God, and he walks out of the room. So he knew that giving this man more intellectual fodder wasn't going to help him at all. What he really needed was to get past his brain to try to start perceiving with the heart, to try to open that devotional aspect of him, or he really wasn't going to progress very far on the path. The next thing it says in the Gita reading is those who render service to others, or those, if it says don't the teachings to those that don't render service. Why is rendering service to others important? It's because it's, again, fundamental to what we are doing is sharing. We're trying to get past our own egos by relating to others, by going outside ourselves. It's way too easy on the spiritual path to get a spiritual ego and just to take things in and oh, this is how I control myself, and this is how I can uh, become a more powerful person, this is how I can control things, this is, you know, me, me. No, it's sharing, it's moving out, it's relating to realities other than your own. And we do that by <coughs> attempting to share and to work with people of different nature. And the last one, it says, is those who aren't interested in hearing or those who take the name of the Lord in vain or those who have no respect for God. And you might think, well, how do they even get close to getting these teachings if they don't want to hear it? But it's surprising. There's people who just want to engage with this, uh, see what it's like and try to knock you off the path or try to you know, argue and convince you that something isn't really right. And they may have a sort of a wounded image of God from their childhood, from a past life or whatever. And if they're, if they're not 
happy about thinking about the divine or they can't even reach to that, what Swami always says, reaching to that uh, image of the higher self or what's the highest you can think of in yourself. Maybe it's better not to share with them because they'll just try to cut it down. So it's very, very clear guidelines in this Gita reading. But in the end, I think for me and maybe for all of you, the most important thing to remember is there's not really all that much that we control in this world. We're, we're sort of just players in this divine show and the thing unfolds. And what we can really do is just work on ourselves, work on how we react, work on our interactions with, uh, around it and work on our own self-realization because ultimately it's through our own self-realization rather than spouting and throwing great pearls of wisdom before people that we're really going to change things around us and change ourselves. And it has to be done with great, great compassion, both for the spark of the divine that's in everybody around us. They're all divine. It's everybody's divine birthright to return to the divine at some point, just as it is our divine birthright to return to unity with the infinite. And that will happen at some point. And in the meantime, we just have to project Lots of patience and lots of compassion.